Well, welcome here. So glad you guys could join us in our new series that we're doing called Foretold. And the whole idea of Foretold is looking at all the different, or not all the different, but a number of the different messianic prophecies. The messianic prophecies are those uh, prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about the coming of Jesus. And, and so anytime we enter into the Christmas season, the Advent season, we want to talk about what leads up to that. What led up to Christ's first coming? And, uh, and that takes us all the way back into the Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Now, Isaiah is written during a time when we've got exile taking place, uh, the Babylonian exile specifically. And if you want to know a little bit more about that, you can check out our previous series called Ezekiel, where we did a, a study on the book of Ezekiel, and we talk about Israel's experience in Babylon. So Isaiah is talking to a people who are in exile, and, uh, and he's got some great things to share with them. But very specifically, in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, we have this messianic prophecy. Now, one of the ways we like to show respect here for God's word is we do like to stand for the reading of his word, so would you please stand with me as we read. Isaiah 11, 1 to 3, here's what it says. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together. And I pray, Lord, that as we're looking into your word, that, uh, Lord, that we, we would be opened up to something new that maybe we didn't see before, maybe a greater understanding, a greater appreciation, a greater heart of thankfulness, Lord, towards who you are. And to that end, Lord, I would ask that, um, that you would help us to be a people who would have eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that are open to you. In your name I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So the Old Testament is filled with all kinds of messianic prophecies and that Christ has fulfilled. Now, it's really interesting when you start looking into some of this stuff because the suggestion from apologists, people who are defenders of the faith, is that if even eight of these prophecies are fulfilled, we're talking about something that would be considered a mathematical impossibility. And Jesus fulfilled a large number of these various prophecies. Now, the exact number, I can't recall just off the top of my head. Certainly something you're going to be able to Google if you want. Um, and some of you might even know. Off the top of my head, I don't. But what I can say is that Jesus fulfilled a number of these Old Testament prophecies. Now, the word Messiah is an important word in all of it. The word Messiah means the anointed one in, in the Hebrew. In the Greek, it's the word Christos. And so this is where we get the word Christ. So Christ is not actually Jesus' last name, as we often might think of it in that sense. It's, his name is Jesus, uh, Yeshua, uh, of Nazareth, right? Because that's where he grew up. He is, uh, or Yeshua ben Joseph, right? The son of Joseph. This is the terminologies that would most likely be true, he would be associated with. But in terms of our understanding of him from a biblical standpoint. We understand him to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christos, the Christ. And it's derived from verbs that have 
uh, a meaning, which is really interesting. It, it, the, the verbs that are used here, uh, the meaning behind them is to rub, uh, to anoint, to rub something, or more specifically, to anoint somebody. Now, it's not an uncommon practice for people to be anointed in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you find uh, the anointing of oil with priests, for example. In Exodus chapter 29, verses nine, uh, 1 to 9, you find that. In Kings, uh, kings get actually anointed with oil. 1 Samuel 10, uh, you've got 2 Samuel 2, uh, 1 Kings 1. And then sometimes you also see the anointing of prophets. 1 Kings 19, verse 16. And this is almost a sign of a special function that the individual would have within the Jewish community. And so if there was a special function that they were being assigned to, it wasn't uncommon for them to be anointed. They would have their head anointed with oil. And also when God anointed or authorized uh, for leadership, in many cases it provided the empowering of the Holy Spirit for this person to do something that there's no way they would have been able to do on their own. And you read that again in 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, or Isaiah 61, verse 1. Now here's, here's where it really gets tricky, because when you use the same kind of language in a variety of different ways, you want to make sure that you're using it in a way that derives the meaning that's intended there. So this term of anointed doesn't necessarily make them the anointed one. So, for example, when Samuel goes to find the next king to replace Saul, he was to anoint that king. But that king wasn't necessarily the anointed one. And, of course, we know from the story that the king is David. And David plays a very prominent part in this whole messianic figure, as we're going to talk about a little bit later. There's also a number of names used uh, to describe the messianic person other, other than the word Messiah. And this is also important as we're looking at some of the prophecies that come up. So one of them would be uh, son of David. That would be one of them. Another one might be son of God or son of man, prophet, elect one. Um, servant is a big one. Chosen one, branch, root, coming one. And so for our purposes today, we're going to look at the word or the, the name, the branch. And the reason we look at this one is because this is one of the strongest uh, prophecies related to the role and the function of the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And so there's a couple of places that it talks about the branch within the Old Testament. First off, it talks about it in Zechariah. Now, the book of Zechariah is a book of the Bible that not a lot of people spend a ton of time with. Uh, but in the book of Zechariah, in Zechariah 3, Zechariah is shown a vision of a high priest by the name of Joshua. So there's this guy, his name is Joshua, he's the high priest of the land, and Satan is accusing him. Like, check this out, like Satan's actually mentioned in the book of Zechariah. And so Satan's accusing him in front of the angel of the Lord, and talking about just how he's just not this good guy, right? All these different things that come along. And what we find is that the angel of the Lord rebukes Satan. And actually talks about Joshua as, a one, as one who was chosen and come out of the fire. So he is this person who essentially is saved. 
God removes Joshua's sins from him, and he then commissions him for service. And after doing this, after dealing with the accusation from Satan, and after commissioning him, talking about like giving him, replacing his garments, taking away his dirty garments, giving him clean garments, um, he then says this. He says in Zechariah 3, 8 to 10, listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. There's a statement right there. Symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua? There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. I will remove the sin from this land in a single day. And we all know what day that was, don't we? It's that day on Calvary. And in that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. And so here in verse 8, the branch is given the traditional royal David or Davidic title of my servant. David is frequently referred to as my servant. And it's something that is almost synonymous in referencing any somebody perhaps in the Davidic line or David himself. My servant. And it's closely associated with the idea of the branch. And so in these Zechariah chapter 3 verses 1 to 10, Jeremiah 33 verse 14 to 26 anticipated this royal branch to arrive shortly after the people were going to return from exile into Jerusalem. So they were anticipating this king to come. This, and the reason that this is important is because there are some who would try to suggest that this prophecy was talking about Joshua himself, except that nobody in a Hebrew society understood that to be Joshua himself, but rather referring to the Messiah coming, the servant, the branch. And they believed that the priesthood, when coming out of exile, would be fully restored and would come under this person. A lot of commentators, both Jewish and Christian, have attempted to see the branch as Zerubbabel. We talked about that a little bit. Zerubbabel is the, is the governor who saw the temple rebuilt in Jerusalem, and it's referred to as the second temple. And that second temple was standing even in Jesus' day, except that in Jesus' day, there was, you could say, a third temple. It was more of a renovation to the second temple where Herod expanded it, right? So he added on to it. Uh, that was Zerubbabel's temple. And so some people have tried to suggest that Zerubbabel was the this person that was foretold. The difficulty we have with that is that Zerubbabel wasn't a king. He was a governor, and he most certainly wasn't a priest. And so he doesn't really fit with the other branch passages. Also, while we want to note that Zerubbabel built the second temple in 516 BC, the Messiah is to build a future temple. And we read about in Ezekiel, actually, chapters 40 through 48. So there's a lot of different things that come along with this as we're talking about messianic passages. In Zechariah 6, verse 12 to 15, it says, Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Here is the man whose name is the branch. There's a name, right? If you're looking for names for your kids, his name is the branch. 
and he will branch out from his place and will build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And he will be clothed with majesty and sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne. And there will be harmony between the two. The crown will be given to Hildeah, Tobijah, Jedidiah, or Jediah, sorry, and Hen, son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me, sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. Now, here's the interesting thing that comes along with this. There's something that's taking place in this passage that's really unique. And that is this idea of the king-priest. It is a rare combination that you'll find in the scriptures. The king-priest language is something that separates Joshua as high priest from the branch that they're talking about here. So there's no way possible for Joshua to be the branch. Joshua was not pronounced king of Jerusalem. He was the high priest. Transferring the royal crown from the tribe of Judah, right? Because the royal crown came from the tribe of Judah. So to transfer that, the crown from the tribe of Judah and the house of David to the tribe of Levi would have been absolutely intolerable to the Jews. But not only would it have been intolerable, you have to know that it would have disrupted other things. It would have disrupted and voided the promises of the Lord to the tribe of Judah in Genesis chapter 49 and to the house of David in 2 Samuel 7 verse 12. And so what we know then is that God's not going to contradict himself. It's just not possible. He will not contradict himself. So he is not going to do something here that would make it look like he's either lying or misspoken. Joshua could not possibly be the branch that's being referred to here. Zechariah 6, 9 to 15 that we just read is one of the most important of these prophecies because it confirms the union, right? Because he says it's going to bring harmony to the priests and the king. And the king is going to be the priest and he's going to rule on his throne. And yet he's the one in charge of the temple. This is something that's very different. And so there's this confirmation of a union between the priestly and the kingly offices in the Savior. The branch. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 110, verse 1 to 4, it reads this way. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day, the troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed with holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like the dew morning from the womb, or the dew morning's womb. The Lord has sworn, and it will not change his mind. Listen, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So this begs the question, who is this guy Melchizedek? Right? I mean, maybe you've heard this name before. Maybe you haven't. But in the book of Genesis, you have Abraham who's going on a journey. And on this journey, he comes across this guy by the name of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a king, and he's a priest of the Lord Most High. Here's the interesting thing about Melchizedek. We have no genealogy from Melchizedek. 
So we do not have his beginning, and we do not have his end. And so to suggest that this new king, this unity between the priest and the king is going to be from the order of Melchizedek is the idea that there's not going to be a beginning or an end to this person. Isn't that neat? The order of Melchizedek. We know from the Psalms, the Psalms specifically that address kingship in the scriptures, ones like this one, that the Messiah would exercise an everlasting priesthood in addition to his royal office. And so if the Messiah is to be David's son, then how could he also be a priest unless he's from a different line of priests? He couldn't be from the Levites because the Levite could never be a king. He'd have to be from one that was beforehand and in the same capacity greater than the line of the Levitical priesthood. He had to be greater. And when you go over to the book of Hebrews, what we learn is that Jesus is referred to as a greater high priest, a better high priest, better, greater than the Levitical priesthood. And how can he be a priest forever? There's only one way, not die. Is the only way, not die. Or at the very least, the better way to say it is not remain dead not remain dead. And then not only that, we need a descendant of David that is greater than David, and he must also serve as a priest in some way outside of the qualification of being a Levite, and he's got to do it forever. When the psalmist answers his own riddle, the priest would be of the order, not the line of, but in the order of, and those are different languages. The order of Melchizedek, meaning that He's not from the genealogical line of Melchizedek. Okay? He's from David's line. He'd be a king of righteousness and of peace. And the very way that he would be of the order of Melchizedek is by virtue of being a priest forever without end. Melchizedek was, as you recall, greater than Abraham, having been before Abraham. And then finally, regarding the, both the branch texts that we find within Zechariah, there's a commentator by the name of John B. Metzger, and he gives us some pretty decent insight into this. He says, God uses words that should not be missed or counted as insignificant. When he calls the branch a servant when speaking of Joshua, he's referring to the basic ministry of the priest. The priest was a servant of the Lord who mediated between the people and their God. And so when when the language of servant is being used talking about Joshua, he's just referring to his role with the people. When he's talking about the branch, God's servant, he's talking about the Davidic line. Because that is the language that gets used in reference to David. And so there's some really neat things that I encourage you. Go read it. Uh, study the book of Zechariah because there's some fantastic stuff that we're just not able to cover right now in it that's going to help deepen your understanding. We're going to skip right now over to the book of Jeremiah. And we look at the, the topic and the language of branch in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6, it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous 
Savior. So in the context, Israel is dwelling safely in the land. I don't know if you will recall this, but this is, again, during the Babylonian exile. And Jeremiah tells the people, because the Lord instructs them to do so, that they are to set up farms, set up land, that they are to live life with some level of normalcy within their exile. And so they were living in, in safety to some extent within their exile. So the text could be considered part of what's being called, or what is often called, prophetic telescoping. Now, that's probably a term you've not heard before. Um, prophetic telescoping is, is this idea of a prophecy that bridges the first and second coming of Jesus. The prophets saw future events as distant events, with, distant events without having an awareness of large time gaps between them. And so it's prophetic telescoping. Also, prophets understood that history had two major periods. History had the present age and the age to come. And although they did not always make a hard distinction between the two, this is certainly still the way that they viewed life around them. So prophetic telescoping stresses what you would call, and I want to be careful with this, what you would call progressive revelation, which means that God didn't reveal everything all at once in the Old Testament. Now, Progressive revelation is not something that we find anymore because we understand that in the writing of the New Testament, it is complete. We have God's word for his people, and there's no need, no new truths that are coming out. The, prophet, the prophetic or the uh, progressive revelation is something that is gone. What we do find is in the old, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there are prophecies that were given that were not necessarily fully understood at the time that came to fulfillment in the New Testament, and then when looking backward, they made more sense. It's kind of like when Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus, and he's walking with these two disciples, and do you remember what it says? It says that he taught them from the scriptures everything that it had said about him. And then they came to a full understanding, presumably. Well, the scriptures they're referring to there is the Old Testament. Because while Jesus was still walking on the earth, even post-resurrection, there was no New Testament. It hadn't been developed. It hadn't been written. So the scriptures he was referring to were the Old Testament. And so showing how he had been revealed through them. Let's jump over to Isaiah. We were just in Isaiah for a little bit in the beginning there. Isaiah chapter 11, you heard me read uh, verses 1 to 3. Verse 1 to 9 says this, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. By the way, this is, the, this is one of those clues within Scripture that I think is really important that we understand. When you have statements like this, when there is imagery being used in the Scriptures, and it's frequently used. It's used over and over again by different prophets. you got to hone in and do a word study on that because there's a significant meaning and intention in the use of that language. And so really important when we do this, right? So a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. 
He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. And this is, next part is something that maybe you've heard a lot when we talk about end time kind of things. The wolf will lie with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And the little child will lead them. Does that sound familiar yet? The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw with, like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, and the waters, and as the waters cover the sea. And so here we have no mention of the word Messiah, right? Not once. Not one time do we hear the word Messiah. But we've got the branch. And we know that the branch is a reference to the Messiah's coming. So we do see the impact then of the Messiah's rule. And it's in a world that would look entirely different, isn't it? This is not something that we see in our day and age, is it? It looks as if there's some sort of utopian order. Now, often what we find is that believers, Christians, will look at verses 1 through 5 and talk about the first appearance of Jesus and say, yeah, you know what? That lines up with Jesus' first coming. And then when you continue reading and you read the rest of the chapter, right, verses 10 to 16, what you can if really say is that, well, these things just haven't happened yet. Listen, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. Listen, the nations will rally to him. Have we seen that yet? Not yet. We've not seen the nations rally to him yet. And his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand, listen, a second time. That's an interesting statement. A second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish. Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile towards Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will subdue Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but these are all of these big nations that are surrounding Judah during the exile. They're all surrounding them. And time and time again, they're referenced as nations that God is going to bring under judgment because of their treatment of Israel in the exile. Verse 15, the Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. And so he's the idea that he's going to make a way, he's going to make a path through difficulty, through the waters, for Israel to be able to come home. 
it could not be more evident that verses 10 to 16 have not happened. And so that's a reference to the second coming of Jesus. It's amazing to me that in our Christianity, there's a limited knowledge of what the Old Testament actually has to say about the end of the New Testament. In Isaiah 53, verse 2, it says, He grew up before him like a tender shoot. Uh, tender shoot is, again, another reference to the Messiah's coming. And like a root out of a parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. In other words, he's just going to look as normal as anybody else. And there's nothing extra special about how he's going to look. But the historical reading of Isaiah 53 and the coming king of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 to 16, it connects the servant being referred to. And this is all leading to the coming, rather second coming at this point, of Jesus. It indicates the servant as a royal figure who is a Davidic king. That is who the branch is. And also, as Daniel Block, the commentator uh, Daniel Block notes, that when the Messiah is both characterized as a servant with a specific name, and that name is always David, or at the very least, a person with a Davidic connection. Every single time. Every single time. Here's an example. Ezekiel 34, verse 23, 24. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant, David. Here's what you need to know. When Ezekiel wrote this, David was dead. So who are they referring to? It's the future line of David. And he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David, there's my servant David piece again, talking about that Davidic rule that's coming in. My servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. And so when the term David is used, the name David is used, post-David, when David is already buried and mourned, it's talking about his Davidic line. So one from the line of David. Zechariah 3.8, listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates sit before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. It's the servant of the Davidic line. The servant of the Davidic line. So what we find in our study of the branch is this. The Messiah is to be both priest and king. Both priest and king. In other words, the Messiah has a dual role. Some would suggest that there's a, there's a, a threefold role, right? You've got, you've got priest, king, and prophet. For our purposes for today, we're looking at priest and king. As priest, he would provide the atonement for all time and make intercession for the people. Priests, like Aaron, offered up sacrifices on behalf of Israel every year. Every year there was this big sacrifice that needed to take place. Christ, as the great high priest, offered sacrifice once and for all. He's a better high priest. As king, he would rule and he would reign. Kings of old had limited dominion, limited dynasties. The king ruled for a certain number of years and then his rule ended. 
And somebody else took it up, maybe one of his kids. Christ's dominion is over all things for all time. It extends forever. Christ is both high priest and king. He is the branch, the servant. Now the beauty in that is this. If Christ is a better king, then we need to reflect on what it means for us who have no concept of what it means to serve a king. We need to reflect on what it means to have a king in our life who is king over all things, who is dominion over all things, in charge of all things. You know what security comes from serving somebody who's in charge of everything? Unbelievable security that can come from that. As high priest, the better high priest, who's able to make the sacrifice once and for all, never having to be sacrificed again. The sacrifice of sins. Do you know what that means? We're covered. The sin debt, death, paid. And when we sin, we come to him for forgiveness, but it tells us that he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. As far as the east is from the west, he will separate our sins from us. But in terms of actual dealing with the death that comes from sin, when you're in Jesus, he is the high priest, constantly making intercession for us, but he paid that blood oath once and for all, never having to be paid again. Do you know what security comes from that? Imagine for every single one of your sins, you had to make a sin offering. For every sin you have ever committed, you would have to make a sin offering. I don't know about you guys, but I would never leave the temple. I'd be making a sin offering all the time. And Jesus makes that offering once and for all. He's the greater high priest. As a matter of fact, Here's what you need to know about high priests. This is one of the coolest things. And when I learned this, it just changed how I viewed the cross. The high priest makes uh, sacrifices seeking the forgiveness for the sins that we know about. That part we knew. But he also makes sacrifices on behalf of the sins that we don't know about. And then when I think of the cross... When Jesus is there and he's making this ultimate sacrifice, and then he says this, tell me if this doesn't sound like a high priest to you. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Does that sound like covering the sins that we're ignorant about? What an amazing high priestly prayer. We have a better king. We have a better high priest in Jesus. I would encourage you, reflect on what that means in your life. And I will promise you that when you dig deep into it, there's so much freedom that comes from it, so much encouragement, so much joy. And he came that you would experience that to its fullest. And that would be in him. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together. And I thank you, Lord, that we get to look into what it means for you to be king and high priest and how you are the branch, the servant, the the David that's been raised up. And so, Lord God, I thank you so much that we're able to look at your first coming and look forward then also to your second coming. May we be a people that internalize what it means for you to be our king who is ruler over all things. You are sovereign. May we be a people who understand you as high priest, 
that you make intercession for us and you paid the price once and for all. Thank you, Jesus. You are so amazing. Amen.